Hello and welcome to the Young Conservative Podcast. My name is Hudson Havenhill. I am 18 and getting ready to head off to college where leftists have an iron grip on all aspects of schooling and thought. Their time is up. For too long, conservatives everywhere have stood by while the youth of America has become indoctrinated and told that all differing opinions are racist, homophobic, xenophobic, sexist, or some other phobic ism or ist. It is time for a rebellion. Ask yourself, how many of your peers are conservative or libertarian or classically liberal? If you are my age, then the answer is very, very few. Everybody understands that many people become conservative as soon as they get a job and begin paying taxes, but how do we combat young people staying in the leftist educational system for upwards of six years after high school? Can your views really change all that much when you are 26 and fresh out of graduate school? I think no. This is why conservatives everywhere need to unite and take our fight to the youth. Educate them on critical thinking, empiricism, and rationality, not when they are out of college, but when they are just beginning to experiment with politics. You'd think this would be common sense, yet the modern conservative movement is so out of touch with America's youth, I don't blame young people for voting left. As Milo Yiannopoulos pointed out in a speech, how many young Republicans read National Review or watch Fox News? None. Relatively new voices such as Milo, Gavin McInnes, Ben Shapiro, Devin Tracy, Dave Rubin, Carl Benjamin, Stefan Molyneux, and others have been frontrunners on the fight against radical leftism and social justice, and they come from a wide swath of political opinions, but none of them are actually that young. Name me a prominent conservative who is younger than 25. It can't be done. This needs to change. This is my goal with this podcast, to give young people an opportunity to hear conservative opinions from someone your age, someone who actually knows what young people are concerned about and who knows how to present arguments and knowledge in a medium that is perfect for the busy high schooler or college student. It is time we turn back the clock on the corruption of campuses and schools and create an unstoppable force of young people who know how to think. I do not want a right-wing equivalent of the ideological dullards on the far left. I want people of all beliefs and backgrounds to be able to discuss ideas in a logical manner and not bully their opposition. Those armed with truth and evidence will defeat the radicals in our society. We can win. So, let's begin. The purpose of this podcast is not for my reactions to the latest news story. I think there is already too much of that on YouTube and the like. I want to talk about ideas and principles rather than individual events. For example, if Donald Trump starts construction on the wall, instead of my thoughts on it, I will talk about the role of a government securing the border. This will mean that anyone can listen to any one of the podcasts in whatever order they want and still be able to fully understand what I am saying and how it relates to our current political system. My current ideas for episodes will be topics like the Constitution in the Modern Age, role of the federal government on social issues, capitalism versus socialism, feminism, and others. Broad enough ideas that they can be applied to myriad events, but still focused enough to be relevant in today's political landscape. Obviously, the ideas discussed in these podcasts will be sometimes tied to current events, so won't be devoid of news, they will just not be as focused on it. If a news event is noteworthy enough, however, I will talk about it, but in the larger context of a political principle. 
So, with all that out of the way, let's talk about our first topic. Episode 1, The Federal Government. What divides us so greatly from the rest of the world? Many people say our freedom, many say capitalism, and even more say our constitution, but all of these don't exactly get to the fundamental difference. Not to say that they aren't incredibly influential and hollowed ideas and principles that all Americans should believe in, but they aren't actually what separates us from the rest of the world. What makes us different is that we don't trust our government. We know that the government actually is the source of many problems in the U.S., and that it has been the government which has enforced horrible policies that has stripped individuals of their freedoms. And we know that all governments, even those built by the likes of Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, can become tyrannical and authoritarian. Liberty exists in a very fine balance between government power and total anarchy, and it is the American experiment which has come closer than any country in all of history to preserve this sacred ideal. The Founding Fathers knew that if they gave the federal government too much power, it would abuse it, and they also knew that if the government had too little power, individual rights would be violated. By knowing these facts about the nature of government, they designed ours to constantly be checked by the people and to be in balance with the state governments. So, how are we doing on that? Well, I hear a lot of conservatives point out that, oh, Obama is an authoritarian, or even conservatives and a lot of Democrats that say, you know, Trump is an authoritarian. People, I've even heard people honestly say that George Bush was authoritarian in the way that he, um, you know, went about the... Um, Iraq war in the second Gulf War. So I agree there has been a dangerous streak of authoritarianism that has gradually crept in. The proper term is called federal aggrandizement in which the federal government takes power away from the states and gives it to itself. Um, but I wouldn't say that we live in an authoritarian government akin to Russia, you know, corruption equal to Brazil anywhere near China, even Canada or Britain, I would say that America is still relatively free. Granted, we've obviously strayed away from, you know, the libertarian small government principles our founders envisioned. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But we're still at the point where I don't think there's any, you know, future possibility, and you know, in the next 20, 30 years of, you know, the U.S. becoming some authoritarian regime that oppresses individuals. I can't honestly think of where it all started. It's kind of been a thing that's gone on for so long that it's almost ingrained in our history itself. You know, people point out, at least conservatives point out, um, authoritarian-leaning leaders, you know, Woodrow Wilson, who thought that the only um, limit on a president's power should be, you know, his vision. Uh, like FDR and Hoover, who started, you know, that kind of buzzword, the social welfare state that has, you know, kept poverty rates down, LBJ for his poverty, for his war on poverty policies. Um, I can understand why some would think Barack Obama was. I, Obamacare was bad and it obviously took away freedom from the consumer, but I don't think he invented the idea of it. I don't think anyone else thinks he does, but I wouldn't call him an authoritarian president if you don't also call the other presidents in history that acted similarly, authoritarian themselves. So I think it's not as important to call out individual presidents 
or governments for being authoritarian, but rather, what is the mark and the pattern of authoritarianism in the U.S.? So, what do I mean by this? I mean, what is the gradual trend of social attitudes and policies that have gradually led the U.S. government to stray away from its original intent? So, I think a good way to start is with the Supreme Court. Um, it, Thomas Jefferson actually was incredibly angry when the Supreme Court said that he was allowed to buy the Louisiana Purchase because of the Necessary and Proper Clause in the United States Constitution. While they agreed with him, he actually was so angry that they thought that they could interpret the Constitution that he penned an angry letter in which he basically ranted and said, how dare the Supreme Court think that they can be the final say on the Constitution? They're the weakest branch of the, of the, of the entire U.S. government. They don't have that power. And then Marbury versus Madison came along, and the Supreme Court basically granted themselves the power of judicial review or the power to interpret what the Constitution means. Now, that doesn't seem as bad. I mean, a court is supposed to interpret what the law means. That's the point of the court. But it gets dangerous when the court changes the very meaning of the Constitution to fit their ideologies. And you can't really see a better example of this than Dred Scott. So Dred Scott is a case that on the surface doesn't look like it should have honestly impacted as much. I mean, blacks in America did not have rights at the time it was um, at the time it was decided. But as always, what I always tell people when we're, when discussing Supreme Court cases, uh, especially more modern ones um, that we haven't seen the full impact of, if you ha is you have to take every ruling to its logical extreme. At the time, it may seem unreasonable. You know, what is Dred Scott? If I remember correctly, Dred Scott was about segregated uh, passenger trains. And that, you know, as long as the cabins were separate but equal, that phrase is where Dred Scott, it came out of Dred Scott. As long as the trains were separate but equal, Dred Scott wouldn't be able to sit up with the whites. And it's legal for de facto uh, discrimination to take place in that it's okay for people in the, as in the train company, to say, no, we want a white car and a black car. So the Supreme Court saying that was okay became the justification for 50 years of Jim Crow. And at the time, it seemed to follow with all of the other similar Supreme Court rulings, social attitudes, laws, and whatnot about blacks in America. No one would have predicted that Dred Scott would have been used to justify everything from segregated schools to water fountains, all under the guise of separate but equal. So I think the Supreme Court is dangerous. I do. And I think it is a severe impediment on individual liberty and government supremacy and the balance between state government and federal government. If nine unelected people who were appointed by biased, by biased groups as in, you know, the president and that and his regime appoints people, then there's always the possibility, it's almost a rule, that the Supreme Court justices are going to have an ideological bent. Obviously, everybody does, and the fact that some do not seem to think that the Supreme Court does baffles me. 
There are nine people who are supposed to be above all human morality and see above the cloud that is the human experience. And yet we know they're human. I mean, I liked Scalia as much as the next guy, but it was obvious where he came from. I would rather a constitutional conservative than somebody like Ginsburg. But at the same time, we trusted one man to make sure the Constitution was defended. That's dangerous. And it is honestly kind of a sad reflection on the Republic if Republicans are scared and were terrified that if Hillary Clinton got in, we would have 60 to 50 years of horrible Supreme Court rulings if she got to nominate two or three people. If, the, if we are so skeptical of our government and so fearful of our government that it's come to the point where if we don't have three people in the government appointed, the entire system collapse, I think we need to take a harder look at the role of the Supreme Court. Now, in the Constitution, this power is given to the Congress, and I think it is definitely important that the Congress does something, maybe not to the Supreme Court, but to other district courts and circuit courts. I think the judiciary has become very overbloated, not so much in the amount of judges. I don't know the exact numbers on how many there are or what an ideal number would be, but in the power that judges give themselves and the power that the Supreme Court has. So I'd be happy to see some sort of a proposal in the uh, House of Representatives or the Senate in how to kind of reel back the court's control. So I'm moving on to another part of the federal government and, you know, other trends that have been happening. The Supreme Court is a very, um, you know, prominent one, especially with, uh, you know, rulings like Citizens United, with rulings like the gay marriage um, uh, suit and Obamacare. Now, I don't know many conservatives that think gay should not get married. I think many conservatives honestly think marriage should be taken out of the government. But I think the majority of conservatives, at least me, I'll speak for me, would be totally okay if gay marriage was passed as a federal bill or passed as a, in a state government. For the Supreme Court to reinterpret the Constitution and claim that it covers gay marriage is a little ridiculous. I don't think the Founding Fathers were sitting around in Philadelphia, discussing whether or not two men should be able to get married. Not saying that gays are different than straight people or need to be treated differently or inferior or shouldn't be allowed to be happy. Not at all. I have no problem with anyone getting together with anyone. Two consenting adults and who are over 18 and are fully capable to make decisions should be able to do what they want. But I don't think the decision should have been made in a Supreme Court because the Supreme Court shouldn't be making laws. I don't think it's worth it, however, as some have said, to repeal the decision or to overturn it with another case. I think it's a settled issue. The majority of Americans do think gay marriage is fine. I'm okay with it. I just am worried that, like Dred Scott, it can be used to persecute people in the future, as we've seen with Christian bakers, florists, and, you know, the little sisters of the poor, I think is what they were called. And that was with Roe v. Wade, not with gay marriage. Um, it's a separate issue. Um, so let's look at some other trends. Executive orders are a big one. Um, a lot of people said Obama used a lot of executive orders. It's true. He did use an excessive amount. Donald Trump is also doing the same thing, which does not make me incredibly happy. I wish he would be doing it through the Congress and proposing legislation. Um, 
And I think I wish Obama did. And I wish all presidents would do that. But at the same time, I've heard so I've heard the argument that, well, Congress isn't getting anything done. Therefore, it's the president's job to make sure policies are passed. I was talking with someone about three, four months ago, I remember, and they basically said, if the government isn't getting anything done to address current problems and you know pressing issues, then who is supposed to? And you can't blame Obama for passing executive orders when Congress wouldn't do anything. I do see the merit to that, and it does feel bad when there is a divided, you know, House or divided Senate or a House like in the last four years of Obama in which, you know, you had a Republican House and a Democratic executive branch. I definitely understand where frustration could come in if people feel that their policies are not being passed enough. But it was designed this way. The Founding Fathers didn't want a government that got a lot of things done. This is why we are not a parliamentary system like the UK. The UK has no constitution, and the majority party is advantaged if they win. So no matter what, almost and almost, I mean, there are obvious exceptions, but almost if the almost every time if the conservative party right now wants something, they can do it. And there's not much chance for, you know, Labour or the Lib Dems or BNP or SNP or UKIP or any of these other parties to really get in the way of that since the conservatives and whoever the majority party is have more say. And the House of Lords and Britain can't really do much. They just review legislation and delay it. So coming back to America, um, I, 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 I sympathize with people who feel that the government isn't doing enough. But at the same time, I go back to what the Founding Fathers wanted. And they wanted a government that moved slowly. They wanted a state governments to take over that position of rapid legislation to adjust for needs of smaller groups. For instance, if Texas feels they need a new highway system, they shouldn't have to go to the federal government and ask for a national infrastructure bill. So I... My real thoughts on this is more along the lines of, look, we need to do it the way that government wanted, which was slow. If things are done too quickly and without and and with not, you know, because you can have, you know, a majority of people in the in the legislative branch support it. But public polling could show a much different result. And even if it didn't say 60, 40, you know, was it it was 60 percent in favor of let's say gun, you know, gun control legislation, if it was 60% in favor and 40% against, I don't think that that should be enough. I think that the the founding fathers wanted a system in which if everybody in the country agreed, then you pass things. But if only, you know, 45 to 55% of people did it, wanted it, and the government is split because, you know, the current president um, was elected four years ago, and then and the House and the Senate were elected two years ago, and public attitudes changed, there shouldn't be the ability for a president who's not actually represented by the people anymore relative to, you know, the popular vote to have as much power as a legislative branch. And it also puts the power in one man. And that is the definition of a non-Republican, little r, government. So... That's kind of my thoughts on executive orders. 
going along with presidents, um, personal followings have also, I think, led to federal aggrandizement. You know, you have someone who says, I represent the will of the people, and then the people agree, and they're like, yes, now I want no choice. Please take choice away. And it's this populism that I think you're seeing on both sides. You saw it with the left to begin with. You know, you have people like FDR and Wilson. But at the same time, I think Trump exemplifies that perfectly. And I don't really think many people on the right would disagree. It's very much I'm a Trump supporter, not so much I am a Republican or a conservative. And that does bother me. I don't know how large that group is of just pure Trump supporters who don't identify as Republicans or conservatives, but it's it's definitely large enough that it was a significant part of his most vocal supporters. Uh, for instance, the subreddit r slash the Donald, which is the official Donald Trump subreddit on uh, reddit.com. A lot of people, and I browse it uh, daily just to see what they're talking about, say, I'm not a Republican, I am a Trump supporter. So they kind of try to distinguish themselves. And that bothers me. I don't think Trump is the first one. I think the most recent example was Obama. If he's going to Jimmy Kimmel every other night and, you know, cracking jokes and being funnier than the host, I, I don't think that's what the president's supposed to do. He's too powerful and he's using his bully pulpit to really influence public opinion in a way that the president shouldn't be able to. Um, I don't want to say that the president shouldn't be able to influence public opinion at all. I just think the level at which people allow the president to influence public opinion is too great. So, for instance, at my high school, plenty of people are um, Obama Democrats. And I was talking to one of my friends who's a recent convert to conservatism. And he was talking to me about how he thought it was hilarious. People were saying, oh, 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 oh you've got a personal following to Donald Trump. Meanwhile, they would have Barack Obama as their cell phone background, which is wacky in my opinion. I don't understand why you'd put a politician as your background so you can look at his face every day. That kind of irks me the wrong way and kind of glorifies politicians in a way that I don't think they deserve to be glorified. Um, and it's it's like, it. I don't, I mean, there are obviously people who have Donald Trump as their phone wallpaper, but I don't think the type of almost romantic, not love for him but desire of obama and love of his image i guess is that present on the right but i think it's starting to get there although i don't i think people see obama as the great change and the great you know the unifier and gandhi you know presence almost whereas i think people see trump as kind of you know i'm a dad and i'm gonna get things done and i've got you know the biggest pair of balls in the race kind of guy and he's a no-nonsense you know manly man and I, I think the two personal followings are a little different. I wouldn't say that they're exact, but I will say that you see that on the right. So you, you, you saw those begin, personal followings, that is. You saw those begin with Wilson and FDR, most definitely. I don't, from my, to my knowledge, I don't really see any other um, presidents in history that have been that personally attached to, you know, by the public. Um, I think it was largely due to the Industrial, industrial Revolution and... Uh, um, invention of the radio and, you know, faster forms of communication. So Wilson, you know, was looked on upon Mussolini as, the, as an American dictator um, and praised by a lot of European socialist leaders as being, you know, their version, as being the American version of them. And if you ask people today, 
a lot of liberals and even conservatives, honestly, seem to think Wilson and FDR were not bad presidents. FDR and Wilson, to my knowledge, are consistently ranked in the top 10 to top 15 presidents of the U.S., which baffles me from a conservative standpoint as to why they are put up so highly. It makes perfect sense from a liberal standpoint why they are, at least with FDR, most especially, because of his, you know, government spending, big government, strongman type-ish personality. I think Teddy Roosevelt better exemplified that. But he was the type of guy who, you know, would get things done and just cared about the working man. But I, I think people are starting to distance themselves from Wilson, at least on the left. I think it was Princeton University. Um, which had, at least last year or two years ago, which had protests about a building that or a statue of Wilson um, because he was racist. And he, he really was racist, and that's awful, obviously. But it, it kind of begins on the left, the personal followings. And while there have been, you know, far-right populists before, not to the same level, and at least not in America, you did have, I cannot remember his name right now, I'll look him up right now. He was all about the silver standard. I'm looking him up right now. He was a right-wing populist, I'm fairly certain. Ah, it was the free silver movement. William Jennings Bryan, that's what he is. The cross of gold in favor of free silver. Sorry, he was for, um, yeah, so he was a populist. Um, I do not know. Let's see what party he was. The short-lived silver Republican Party. So, yeah, it looks like he was Republican. So that's who I, all, all I can really think of in terms of right-wing populists. And he didn't get very far. He was kind of a small populist leader. He didn't really have that much followers. He had a few vocal ones. He was kind of the Donald Trump, um, but he didn't win an election, obviously. Um, so that's really what I see with personal followings. I think it started on the left. And I think that has most certainly led to the federal government getting more power, and especially the executive branch, than it needs. So to kind of go to a different direction, kind of, you know, start a new topic almost about the federal government, about federal aggrandizement. I think it's really important to know kind of the juxtaposition, if you will, of the Constitution and its amendments, specifically uh, the ones everybody knows, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and uh, so forth, not, not so much the newer ones. And it's interesting because... If you look what the Constitution is, the Constitution itself is a document that says what government can do. But then the amendments are what government can't do. So it's, you have this can-can't relationship between the amendments and the Constitution, which don't make much sense. So if you strictly lay out um, what the government can do, then they can't really fake that or get around it. If, if, if they want to get into educational policy, then the Constitution says nothing about educational policy. And so it's kind of iffy if they want to. And if, if we had a Supreme Court that actually cared about that, then we obviously would not have policies like No Child Left Behind and others. But it's the, the amendments that kind of bug me. And I've advocated before and um, written article, written uh, you know pieces about in Gov class or not for projects about how we need to kind of reevaluate that part of the Constitution and how I think the Founding Fathers, they got it wrong when it came to having the amendments. And there was a big argument about this, about, you know, between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists about can we have the can and the can part and can we have the cannot part? 
Um, so what? So, kind of why are the amendments dangerous and uh, the way they're phrased? So if I tell you, if say I'm the government and I tell you, you are allowed to practice your religion, you are allowed to own a gun, you are allowed to not have soldiers in your house. I can now get around that. So if I make a statement about what I can't do, so let's say I make a negative statement, as in you have, you know, as in, let's say, you know, phrase it in the way the amendments are uh, phrased, you know, an individual has the right to assemble peacefully in protest. So the Founding Fathers, when they wrote it, it was intended as in it was public is in, in, in a public place. And so I can say, okay, I'm the federal government. Let's get around that. Let's, let's say that it's not so much of a protest as it is a disruptive civil unrest. And so now I can call you a riot, even if, you're, even if you are peaceful. I can say that people are getting aggressive. I can say that you aren't protesting for a cause or... You didn't have the right permit and, you know, so forth. And it kind of blurs the lines between giving the government, you know, limiting government power. Now, I think the amendments are very good in the way they phrased it. And it's hard to kind of misinterpret it. But at the same time, it's that logical kind of discord between can and cannot. So kind of another example of this is with the First Amendment. You know, you have the right to free expression. Now, the government, if they don't like what you say, they can't directly suppress you. And that's awesome. But we saw this under Obama with the IRS. They can come after your business with the arm of the government, with the hammer of the government, and audit you. Or they can fine you. Or they can do something that limits your ability to say anything. And if you say, hey, 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 you're violating my First Amendment rights, they can say, what are you you talking about? Where in the Constitution does it say you have the right to not be audited? And this is what happened with the, you know, the IRS scandal under Obama. Conservative businesses, nonprofits and um, individuals were audited because the IRS did not approve of what they were saying. And so this kind of blurs the line between the First Amendment and everything else. And it's 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 an issue when the government at all costs wants control. And that's all the government is. A government is a group of individuals who want to control the rest of the population. Founders knew that and they had to they tried to curb that as much as they could. Um and they were mostly successful with it, but at the same time, people will do anything for power and they'll ignore anything for power as well. So That's why you kind of have to have the check, you know, with the 10th Amendment between states' rights and federal rights, between the individual and the government. And so the founders, they tried. They really did, and they succeeded in many ways. But it's it kind of shows the inconsistency with the amendments and the Constitution. So to kind of go off the amendments in another way, I think the government was founded on the idea, like I said in the you know, the beginning monologue about how Americans don't trust their government and that, you know, liberty exists in a very fine balance between government power and total anarchy, you know, blah, 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 blah. And 
how how did the founders kind of do this? How did the founders approach this from a conservative standpoint? And I believe the founders were would be today, you know, considered conservatives. I, I don't think that's unreasonable to say. I think even a leftist would agree with me. Um, and how what kind of what systems are they put in, in place to make sure that government that the government wouldn't become tyrannical? Not saying that these have worked entirely, but also I think that they have kind of stopped a lot of what has been happening. So I think the Second Amendment is a fantastic kind of display of the power to resist government. Um, I don't know many police officers that would be willing, if told, or military members that for that, that would be willing, if told, go into every house that has firearms and confiscate them because they know the owners of those firearms would use them to defend their Second Amendment rights. And so this kind of check in that the government isn't the only people of the monopoly on the use of force like they do in Europe uh, and China, for example, um, it's very healthy because it's constantly a battle between the government and the people and the people always can fight back. So it's these type of it's this type of dance, if you will, that the government goes through with the individual and with, you know, the community that the individual is part of in saying, I'm going to put my foot kind of in your in your yard and you're going to push back, but not enough. And I'm going to put my foot a little farther in your yard and then you're going to start, you know, a little risky. And as soon as I open up your door, I know that, you know, you're going to use your Second Amendment rights and make sure that doesn't happen. And so I think that is a good reason and a primary reason why the U.S. kind of was relatively safe throughout the 20th century, albeit we did have Wilson and FDR, the closest presidents that we've ever had to dictators, even if they were benevolent dictators. But it was the Second Amendment because, you know, Europe did not have that. Europe has a very different cultural identity in which guns are not uh, a, a, a critical part of their history. And because of this, because um, we know how important it is to defend ourselves against tyranny. I I think that was a primary reason. Granted, we're also largely isolated. You know, we have two oceans on either side, friendly countries, you know, north and south. So we didn't have as much of the direct impact of the war on us, you know, as other countries did. But I think a large reason why the government was never able to gain as much power was largely because of the ideas like the Second Amendment, because the government knew if we try to get too powerful, the people will revolt back. You did see this in, um, obviously, in Nazi Germany during World War II. You saw resistance groups. You saw a lot of resistance groups in France and whatnot. But it took a little longer for those to get, you know, kind of built up. Whereas in America, America I think on day one, the government announced we're confiscating all firearms. There would be quite a lot of resistance. And... This is why I think America has the potential to kind of not outlast, because I don't know. We have no way of knowing if America, not, America can outlast. I mean, Europe has been around, obviously, hundreds of years, if not thousands, depending on if you view Rome as part of Europe and as in the Roman Empire. Um, and while America is relatively young, they've had the foundational freedom so enshrined in the way that they are a country that it it is, to me at least, seems to be a much more stable system 
and one that has the potential to stay more stable for a longer time. For instance, the U.S. is not in a part, you know, of any international group. We are in charge of many of the international groups, even if not explicitly so. You know, we give the most money percentage-wise to the U.N. We're the main people in NATO. We are the largest country in G8. We are, um, you know, the, the largest trading partner in NAFTA and all of these other groups that we kind of get to control our destiny and our ideas and our politics much more than, you know, countries such as Britain, um, as France, Germany, Italy, Hungary, all of these places, etc. There is no American EU, if you will. So because of this resistance to kind of not be isolated, but to be skeptical of international law and recognize our Congress as the supreme power of the land, I think our federal government has done a very good job of protecting us from the collectivist movements that have taken Europe especially by a stranglehold in the late in the early 20th century. I think Britain is probably the closest thing to America in Europe because parliament has parliamentary sovereignty and that is a very important part of parliament especially since the Magna Carta was signed and and you know the individuals said no we have power the king does not and it it does not have a written constitution which is one of the flaws i think it has which is you know earlier i addressed how um parliament you know was able to get things done too quickly compared to an american system but i will say that i think they are very close in terms of success and in terms of the design of their government to the american experiment so kind of in conclusion i think the federal government while flawed, and all governments are flawed, not just America's, all governments, and all federal governments especially, is creeping towards a logical extreme of authoritarianism. I don't think we're anywhere near authoritarianism, but I think we're heading in the general path of authoritarianism. I don't see us having, you know, to pick up arms and shoot the military anytime soon, if ever. I mean, there's always a possibility, that's why the founders designed the Second Amendment, but in my lifetime, I don't know, and I don't see it. But while the federal government has edged towards, you know, a less libertarian viewpoint, at the same time, they have definitely stayed much more limited than a lot of other countries. There is no talk of banning internet websites, you know, of websites on the internet. There is no talk of passing federal hate speech laws that have any merit. And there is no possibility of individual rights being violated on the levels we see in Europe in the past and currently. For instance, Canada, which is fairly European in their ideologies and their kind of collective history, uh, because a lot of them can obviously trace their roots to Europe relatively recently, um, I, they, they recently are, you know, passed a bill um, about a human rights bill, which said that you have you you will be prosecuted if you don't use gender neutral pronouns if someone wants you to. Um, Professor Jordan Peterson is somebody who's been protesting that a lot, and he has been, you know, it's really beaten down numerous times by radical leftists for it. But I don't think our federal government is anywhere near that, and I don't think Hillary Clinton could have changed that, and I don't think Donald Trump will. I think that our system is stable enough and well designed enough that we can outlast 
even an eight-year horrible president. America is still fine. Obama did not destroy it, and the federal government, while powerful, is not nearly as powerful as some think. Should Does that mean we shouldn't fight for the government to be smaller and to spend less? Of course not. We should always push for smaller government and to devolve the federal power and the federal bureaucracy. State governments obviously need to have more control over what they do, and we cannot be passing widespread legislation that affects everybody. We need to focus more on experimenting like Colorado did with marijuana and seeing if it works for them, maybe other states will adjust it. Obviously, there are laws that supersede state um, powers, and those are the ones dictated in the federal government and the Constitution and the amendments. So while flawed, obviously, I think America is in pretty good hands in that our Constitution will always be there, it will always be powerful, and it will always be sacred, and I don't think anyone, even Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, can destroy that system. This has been the Young Conservative Podcast. My name is Hudson Havenhill, and I will be seeing you on the next episode.